All right, good morning, uh, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, I'm one of the pastors here, so whether you're, uh, Hiawatha is your home or whether you are visiting us this morning, we're glad that you are joining us. Thanks, thanks for being here. Uh, we are wrapping up a sermon series in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. So whether you know a lot about the Bible or nothing about the Bible, 2 Corinthians is a book that comes after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and uh, there's a guy named Paul who used to literally be a terrorist against Christians. He would destroy Christians and churches. Jesus saves him and he becomes this great church planter, this great uh, person filled with the Spirit in miraculous ways to go start new churches all over the ancient world. And there was a church in an ancient city called Corinth. And after he started that church, after, uh, after a little bit over a year, he leaves that church to go start new ones, and he writes letters back to this church that he starts and that he knows and he loves. And this church actually has some, uh, some pretty big issues. So if you read, uh, there's also a 1 Corinthians, and if you read that letter, you see just all the mess that is in this church. So sometimes if you hear people say, oh, we just have to get back to the New Testament church, or so pure at the very beginning with the apostles right after Jesus, yeah, great stuff happened, praise God. And go read 1 Corinthians and you see just how messed up humans are, right? How much we need Jesus. So Paul writes these harsh letters back to these, this church that he deeply loves. He says, guys, I love you deeply. Jesus loves you deeply. He is your Savior. And don't get drunk on communion wine. And don't show partiality against people that are different than you and people that are poor. Don't boast about all your sexual immorality. And so Paul has deep love for this church, and because of that, he writes letters that feel very harsh back to them. So Paul's been gone for quite a while. Uh, not everyone loves him because of just how he's had to be, you know, speak hard truths to them. And while he's been gone, a new group has kind of risen up and taken over leadership. And so we're going to see that kind of played out in today's passage. We're going to see Paul respond to those other leaders. So today's sermon we're entitling True Gospel-Centered Power and Authority. So what is, what is power and authority in the church? What, what does that look like? What's uh, the gospel-centered version of that as we look at all of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians 10? So right now in our country, in, in a lot of ways, we're just going through a big leadership crisis, right? We have people that love a leader for these characteristics, and the other half of the population hates that exact leader for those same characteristics. So whether it's a CEO of a business, whether it's a head coach of a football team, whether it's a politician or a president, we don't have a consensus on what exactly does good leadership look like, or what, what should we look for and desire in the person that we are following. Or how should those that do have power and authority, how should they exercise it and use it? And I'll, you mean, even just in the past 10 years, we've really been wrestling through this as so much has come up. The, the Me Too movement, systemic racism that we've been seeing, uh, you know, riots and, and political division, abuse of power all over the place. Uh, leaders who have power and authority using it sinfully and hurting people. And the church isn't isn't even immune to that as well. So we as Christians are also still asking these same questions. What does godly leadership look like? What should we look for in pastors and, and deacons and community group leaders and staffers? What type of Christian should I follow? Etc. Etc. And the, the church here in Corinth is 
uh, wrestling with and asking these exact same questions. What should we look for in a pastor? Paul and all these new pastors look very, very different. And which one should we choose and why? So this essentially was the situation. Here's the background here. So we have Paul, who is an older guy. Now he's, he's poor. He's been beaten down. Opposition and attacks around him all the time. He's not a great public speaker. He's not that charismatic or impressive. And then you have this new group that's kind of taken over leadership in this church that's uh, called super apostles. And I, I didn't make up that word. That's actually in the Bible. We'll see that in, I believe, the next chapter. So there's this new group of people coming in, this new group of pastors, leaders, that uh, are called super apostles that are charismatic, that look good, that are powerful, that are strong, that people want to naturally follow. And they've kind of risen in importance. And Paul's been gone for a long time. And there's conflict between the two. So that's kind of our situation that kind of sets up where we're at. And we'll kind of unpack this more in just a minute. So we're going to be reading through all of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, we'll kind of go like chunk by chunk through our passage today. And also be on the screen behind me. So let's start off in uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writing to this Corinthian church. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face to you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So right off the bat, we see Paul responding to his detractors, this group of super apostles. So right off the bat, we have a group of people leading the church that dislike Paul. They say, why would you follow Paul? Again, he's not a great speaker. He's kind of boring. He stumbles over his words. Lots of people hate him. Like he's getting beat up by all different kinds of people all the time. He suffers. That's like Paul's MO. Why would you follow him when you can follow us uh, super apostles? That's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in. And the first thing Paul says in his response, as he starts off by saying, I uh, entreat, which is a weird word. So let's, it also means um, appeal. So let's just say that. Paul's, Paul's response is, I appeal by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So the first thing Paul says, not, hey, that's my spot. Or those guys are crooks. Or those guys are misled. Or how dare you? Foolish Corinthians, forget about me. The first thing Paul says is, I appeal by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul's first thing he says to them is, remember our Savior. Remember our King. Remember the ultimate shepherd. Remember our great leader, Jesus Christ. And who was he? He was meek. He was gentle. So Christ-like leadership within a church should be Christ-like. So Paul's arguing right off the bat, look at our Savior. He was meek and gentle, and that's what we should see and look for within our leaders. He's asking the Corinthian church, do we want meek and gentle leadership? Christian, church, do we want leadership that looks like Jesus? Or do we, are we just so enamored with these super apostles, these attractive, charismatic, great speaking, funny, popular people 
that we're going to abandon our Savior and look for a different type of leadership. So let's uh, define and kind of unpack these words because we don't use them too often. Or maybe it just seems strange to use these words describing a leader. So first of all, the word meek. Okay, the word meek rhymes with weak, but it's not weak. So we often think that meek does not mean weak. Meek means humble. Meek means gentle. Meek means intentionally giving up power or giving up rights for the sake of another. Which reminds us of our Savior, right? Who chose to give up his own power, give up his rights in order to serve us and save us by dying on the cross. You can think of one of of Jesus' most famous teachings in the Sermon on the Mount where he says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Which is a weird thing to say, right? Who inherits the earth? Well, the powerful, the rich, the important, the royal. They inherit the earth, the land, right? But Jesus says it's different in my kingdom. It's different. The meek will be the ones who inherit the earth. And if we just now read this on the other side of the cross, we understand that Jesus is going to return again and restore this actual earth, recreate, redeem, restore this actual earth. So Jesus is saying, those who will be saved and live on this recreated, restored earth forever, the saved, those will be people who are meek, people who are humble, people who, before God, aren't self-righteous, aren't proud, aren't arrogant, but know their brokenness, know their imperfection, and humbly, meekly come to God, repent of their sin, and believe that he will be the one to save them. Or just flip this around. What's the opposite of what this is saying? Who will not inherit the earth? Who will not inherit the earth? The proud, the arrogant, the violent, the self-preserving, and the self-focused. So right off the bat, Paul appeals to them by, remember our Savior. We have a Savior who is meek. And he continues on, meek and gentle. Gentle also does not mean weak, nor powerless, nor without authority. It actually means you have those things, yet you choose to set them them aside in order to do something even more important. So you set aside your power, your strength, your authority, in order to show affection and love to those who have less power than you. So think of a mama bear who though could rip the face off of anything, you know, in just one swipe or one bite, chooses to tame or to pull back or to give up all that strength in order to show love and gentleness to her little cubs, right? That's why a little bear cub can chew on her mom's ear even though the mama bear could destroy that cub in an instant. She chooses to be gentle, and that is, what, that is who Jesus is. In uh, Matthew 11, one of, another one of Jesus' teachings, he describes himself as this. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, or gentle and humble at heart. So if Jesus is our model of true humanity, and he is, and of true leadership, true spiritual power, then we should also be seeing this in, in leaders within the church. And it's part of what Paul is arguing right off the bat. When leadership, power, and authority in the church doesn't look like Jesus, then it's, it's wrong. 
It's sinful. It's telling an anti-gospel. It's telling when, when, when a pastor or a leader uh, uses the people that God's entrusted to them for their own sake, it tells us that that's the way that God interacts with us. He only loves us or cares for us when uh, we give him something back. Paul continues, or he starts off by appealing to the gentleness and humbleness of Christ and saying, if that's true of our Savior, then you should look for it in my own life and not think of it as a weakness of me being your pastor, Paul's arguing, but rather a way that I look like our Savior. And he continues by, by arguing that he's not two-faced. So a bunch of times in our passage, we're going to see uh, essentially them, uh, his, uh, the super apostles arguing against Paul, saying, hey, you're so nice and calm and gentle in person, but when you write us letters, you're, you're a real jerk. You're so angry at us. Kind of like the person that, to your face, is very kind, but behind your back, or when they send you an email, is, is just really mean and harsh talking. So Paul's responding also, helping them to see he's not two-faced. He's not a hypocrite. But rather, the reason that his letters look different and sound different, have a different tone than when he's face-to-face, is because when he's gone, he's seeing deep sin in their life. He's seeing that they're walking not in line with the gospel that they believe. He loves them enough to call them out on their sin that's leading them away from Christ and towards hell. And Paul also is arguing here, it's kind of hard to see, and I didn't get it when I first read it, but just looking at some of the commentators, they, they, they pick up on this difference. So the super apostles, Paul's enemies, were arguing or accusing him. Verse 2 says, some who suspect Paul of walking according to the flesh. So that was one of the big things they said. Don't follow Paul. He walks according to the flesh. And what they meant by that was two things. One, he's just weak, right? He, he's walking according to this flesh, this body that he's in. He's weak. He's poor. He's always hurt. He's always injured. He's always sick. He's always getting persecuted. He's just not that impressive of a person. Not only that, but also, he's also just doesn't, he's very weak spiritually. So no spiritual power. He's, he's boring. He's not a, a very uh, attractive public speaker. I don't get spiritual goosebumps when I listen to Paul. And he's just always suffering. So essentially, the super apostles are saying, who wants to follow this guy? This guy that uh, conflict always follows him. This guy that does not inspire you with how beautiful he talks or how powerful his persona is or his lack of charisma. Do you really want to follow a pastor, a leader who's always suffering, who's always poor, who's always sick, who's always weak? And Paul responds to this. He says, yes, you're, you're half right. I, we do walk in the flesh, but we also walk according to the Spirit. So Paul responds by saying, yes, we do walk in the flesh. Yes, I am Paul. I am in a human body. I am broken. I am imperfect. I'm not the greatest communicator or the wealthiest person or the most healthy or the most uh, charismatic person here. Yes, I do walk in the flesh, yet this world, our reality, our essence as humans is not just physical. There's also a spiritual. Before he gets to talking about the spiritual, he gets that in just a second. But when he says, yes, we do walk in the flesh, again, he points back to our Savior. He says, do you remember our Savior? 
Do you remember Jesus? Do you remember him? He also walked in the flesh. He also went through great suffering and abandonment and physical pain and torture and death. So Paul's arguing, if you see it in me, I'm resembling Christ in it. So yes, I do walk in the flesh. But I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness and suffering of our Savior. If you see it in our Savior, you should also see it in our leaders. And when you see it in our leaders, don't disdain them for that, but rather see a picture of your Savior. And then Paul continues his defense. He reminds the church, yes, I do walk, we do walk in the flesh, but we don't walk according to the flesh. This world, our reality is more than just physical. It is also spiritual. And we don't just have conflict with other humans, but rather we're in a spiritual war. We battle against, actually, it's not really just other flesh and blood. It's actually sin. It's actually Satan and his servants and his lies. So we're in a spiritual war and we're battling against that type of darkness as well. And Christians should walk according to the Spirit in that. So Paul continues, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So Paul's arguing, whether we like it or not, whether it's strange to us or not, we live in a, in a there's a spiritual reality. We live in a spiritual war. There are enemies out there that want to destroy us. It's not just our sinful heart. There is Satan, and he has servants that are trying to destroy us. But notice how Paul describes spiritual warfare. I don't know your background. Some of you, you might hear the phrase spiritual warfare and think like The Exorcist, the movie. You might think uh, certain incant- incantations or chanting that ward away evil spirits or praying a rosary or holy water or uh, all different kinds of crazy things. Um, that's almost always not what spiritual warfare is. Yes, there are, you know, every once in a while something like that does happen. But the way that spiritual warfare is described here in our passage and other places in the New Testament, it is much, much more about fighting against the enemy and his servants, fighting against his lies and deception with the truth of the word. It's much more that than it is you saying certain prayers to make a little force field around your house to keep out any type of evil spirit or something like that. So spiritual warfare is much more like this picture. And I think it's kind of a cool picture, but obviously no picture is perfect. But we see in this one, uh, so in the New Testament, Satan's described as uh, a roaring lion that just walks around looking for those he might devour and destroy. Okay? And here in this picture, what we see is that the way that this person is fighting against Satan, fighting against evil, he's not using his own strength. I mean, he's not walking by the flesh we see here, but rather, it's maybe a little hard to see, but he's fighting that. You, you see the whatever is coming out of his Bible. So the way that he's fighting against evil and even evil personified and demons or Satan is through the word of God. 
not by him being brilliant or strong or powerful in the flesh, but by the Spirit. So we don't fight, like Paul says, by our own strength, but by the power of God. Notice some of the phrases that he uses. He says we don't wage war according to the flesh. The way we don't, the way we don't fight spiritually, I'm using too many negatives here, the way we fight spiritually is not by being really self-disciplined or being really good at memorizing certain incantations or, or words or whatever, but we don't, but we don't wage war according to the flesh, but we do so spiritually. Then in verse 4 it says, we have divine power. So we're reminded again that the way that we fight against the enemy and against our own sin is not on our own strength. But it's divine power. It's power gifted to us by God or it's God's spirit working within us. If you uh, read in Ephesians 6, go read that with your family or friends or your community group this week. Uh, Paul, writing to another church, unpacks even more this idea of spiritual warfare and different things. But the one thing he says in Ephesians 6, he talks about God's word, the Bible. He says this is the sword of the Spirit. It's the one offensive weapon that we're given in this spiritual battle. So the way that we fight against the enemy, the way that we fight against his attacks of lies and deception and false accusations is with God's word and through the power of God's Spirit. Notice too, he says, we have divine power, again, remember, power that comes from God, to destroy strongholds. That word, you might kind of know what that word means, but the reason that Paul is using that word, if think of strongholds, if you like the Lord of the Rings, think of like Helm's Deep. So it's a, it's a fortress that will hold strong, that will protect you from the enemies attacking you. So Paul is saying here, by God's power, we, we, we have the strength to destroy those type of things in our lives. So why does he say that or what does he mean by that? Here's a a couple different um, authors that help kind of unpack what this means. Neil Anderson says, Strongholds, if you want to know what a stronghold is, they are negative patterns of thought which are burned into our minds either through repetition over time or through a one-time traumatic experience. Or Dr. Uh, Reverend Ed Silvoso writes, A spiritual stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable situations we know are contrary to the word of God. So essentially strongholds are lies that we believe even though that that we intellectually know that are lies. So a stronghold would be Jesus would just never forgive me of a particular sin or something I've done. We know the Bible doesn't say that. It says actually the opposite. Maybe we even know in our head that Jesus forgives all of our sins. But in your heart, you never even dare confess that sin. Or you constantly have guilt and shame because you think that Jesus uh, is too ashamed of, of what you've done. Or, so that would be a stronghold. Or another one is, God would love me more if I do X, Y, or Z. We know the word of God doesn't say that. We know that's not the gospel. But in our hearts, we believe God loves me more the day I flourish, the day I read my Bible, the day I don't yell at my kids, the day I evangelize, the day I fight sin. But then the days I screw up and am lazy and fall back into my sin and just don't care, he loves me less. Okay, we know in our head that's not true. We know the word of, the God, word of God says different, but that'd be a stronghold. We're, we're living as if a lie is true. Or the big stronghold in the Corinthian church is real true leadership is 
earthly charisma, in great public speaking, in strong bodies, and wealth and influence and power. Notice, too, what our passage says here. God gives Christians divine power through the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God, to destroy these strongholds. And we destroy these arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's a really great, really great phrase here. So Paul reminds the church, reminds us, that we fight against Satan, his lies, his deception, his accu- accusations through the Word of God, both in our own hearts and others who don't believe yet. Right? We see uh, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion that keeps people from the knowledge of God. And there's all different kinds of arguments and lofty opinions that keep people from knowing God, right? Whether it's a particular cultural value or opinion or argument, things like, well, uh, a truly good and powerful God would not die. Like, why would all-powerful God die? That's weakness. That can't be true. Or why would a good, true God forgive his enemies or, or, or not just bring justice? Or uh, a good, true God would never punish anyone and never send anyone to hell. Whatever it might be, we have all different kinds of lofty opinions and arguments that keep people from hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, knowing God and who he, who he truly is. And we see that is one of the main things spiritual warfare is. Divine power to destroy these strongholds and these arguments and these opinions that keep people from knowing God. And then finally, Paul says one more phrase. We take every thought obedient to Christ. So one of the main ways that we fight spiritually, one of the main ways we protect ourselves and those we love around us, our church, is by taking every thought captive. We take these lies out of the darkness and we bring them to Christ. We compare it with the Bible. We ask ourselves this question over and over again. Do I trust my own heart? Do I trust the world's advice? Do I trust experts out there in the world? Or do I trust my Savior? And this is something we do a hundred times a day, right? In my mind, I think I'm worthless because I weigh too much. Or God hates me because uh, my friends are not close to me right now. Or um, Jesus is far from me because I cannot get over this chronic illness. Or, or, or fill in the blank. So every single day, we're taking these thoughts captive. Our own sinful thoughts that come from our sinful heart or ones that are being whispered to us by the enemy and his servants. And the way we fight against those untruths, those accusations, that deceit is through taking these thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. What does Christ say? Am I going to believe Christ? What he says about me and about reality and about himself? Or am I going to believe my sinful heart or the lies of the enemy? So that is the main way that we fight spiritually. Now, Kind of seems strange. You might be thinking, okay, first few verses, Paul is defending himself, and then he goes into spiritual warfare 101. Like, what's, what's going on here? How are these two things linked? And so, to kind of back up and help us see how Paul gets from one to two, to see his argument here, Paul is saying, since we all live in physical bodies of flesh, okay, he's acknowledging, yes, we walk in flesh. We're all a part of these sinful, actually real flesh bodies here. And and since there is a spiritual battle raging, since we're not only physical but also spiritual, 
And since spiritual victory is won by Christ and waged through gospel truth, not human wisdom, physical attraction, earthly power, charisma, great public speaking, and earthly success. Because of all of this, Paul's reminding the church and that this is not just our reality, but he's also saying this is what true gospel-centered leadership, authority, a power looks like. Ultimately, it looks like Jesus. And he's going to continue. Verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave us for the building up, uh, for, for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be, frighten, uh, to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Let no such person understand that what we say by letter when we are absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, or they lack understanding. They are foolish So Paul continues his argument by saying, this is what true spiritual authority is. Right in verse 8, he defines it. He says, our authority, okay, so me as your pastor, Titus as another one of your elders, our authority, which the Lord gave for the building, for, for building you up and not for destroying you. So Paul says, this is the reason God called me and Titus and other pastors to lead you. The point of authority, the point of spiritual leadership is to build those up within the church, to build those up who uh, you are leading, who you are entrusted with, just like in a family. So I have a wife and two kids. If God has given me authority and leadership in my family, if I am flourishing personally, my ministry is doing amazing, but those under my care, my wife and kids, are doing horribly, if they're drowning, then that's a huge fail, right? Relatedly, Paul is saying, if I, as your pastor, am, am using my authority and my position in order to bring more comfort and more power and more uh, good stuff to myself at your expense, then it is wrong, and I'm a failure, and it is sinful. So Paul's saying, even if I'm harsh in my letters, it's because my call, my job, my responsibility is to build you up. Just like a good parent says to their kids, yeah, I know you want to have ice cream again for breakfast, but it's not what's best for you. I'm going to speak a harsh word, not because I'm a killjoy, but because I love you. Authority is given by God to people in order to build them up. Like Jesus, right? Leadership, power, and authority must look like Jesus. And not only does Jesus reorient humanity back to what true leadership is supposed to be, he also, when he created his church, Jesus is the designer, the author of his church, his bride, his body. And he designed his church intentionally to have leadership, right? It says right here, God is, uh, God is behind it. We're going to see that later in our passage too, that he's the author of it. He assigned it to happen. And not just any leadership, but he wants leadership within his church, empowered by his spirit to 
resemble Jesus, to look just like him. So as all of us, myself included, as we look at our pastors and elders, as we look at our deacons, as we look at those who are leading in our lives, we should see Jesus, at least in some, some veil-type way. We should see the way that that person speaks to me in love, the way that they serve me, the way that they care about my soul and not just building up my uh, self-esteem. That's just a, a picture, a whisper, a taste of how my Savior feels about me. So look at, there's, there's actually passages in the New Testament that say this is what leaders should look like. This is what leaders need to qualify to be a leader within the church. And notice how these lists look just like Jesus. So 1 Timothy 3, Paul's writing to a different church, telling them about what overseers, pastors, elders, uh, what they must uh, character-wise look like in order to be qualified, and then deacons as well, two different types of leaders within the church. 1 Timothy 3 says, uh, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. There's that word again. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So Jesus sets up in his church leaders that their job is to build up the church. And they should look like and resemble and mirror Jesus in their leadership. Not perfectly, of course. All of your leaders are going to let you down. They are going to hurt you. They are going to sin. But by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, most of the time they will resemble Christ. And that's a great grace to us. And another passage, uh, different, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, is writing to other elders, other pastors at a church. Listen to what he says to them. It's pretty, pretty great. First Peter 5 says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, so your shepherds, pastor, overseer, elder, you're a shepherd, but our chief shepherd, Jesus, when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's even these harsh warnings towards pastors and overseers, shepherds. He says, don't use your pastor role, don't use your authority to gain power or notoriety or comfort or wealth, not for shameful game. He argues, don't use your, your power or authority to make servants of the people that you are over or to create heavy burdens on them, but rather to be examples, right? This makes us probably think of a bunch of, uh, of Jesus' teachings on leadership where he says, in the world, the Gentiles and, and the Pharisees, with the way they lead, they put heavy burdens on their people and they don't lift a finger to help them. But it, it'll be different in my kingdom, Jesus says, right? He, he says that in my kingdom, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If, if you're in my kingdom, the, the leaders 
will serve those that God has entrusted to them. Just as, just like the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that should be the motivation and the power behind anyone who is leading. Leadership. Uh, this leadership quote comes from MLK's birthday. Or we celebrate Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. He has this great quote on leadership within the context of a church, Christian leadership. He says, leadership never ascends from the pew to the pulpit. Meaning, leadership is not you work really hard down here till you arrived up here as a leader, as a pastor, as someone who gets to, to preach and lead a church. But he says, but invariably, leadership, Christian leadership, descends from the pulpit to the pew. True Christ-like Christian leadership leaves the pulpit at times, leaves the, the place of authority or power, and, and moves down towards the people that God has entrusted to them to serve them, to care for them, to build them up. This leadership, power, and authority resembles Jesus, who also, right, left his, his heavenly throne, left his power, condescended himself, and descended into the world to become a servant to us in order to save us. All right. So you might be asking, why, why is Paul defending his ministry? Why doesn't he just say, hey, I'll be humble and let them take over? Why is Paul talking so much of spiritual warfare? Why does Paul bring up authority and leadership within the church? The answer to all that, Paul kind of wraps up here at the end. He said, the reason for all of this is the gospel. The reason for all of this is that the gospel will be spread. Jesus would be made famous. We would believe and hear and, and trust the gospel in our own hearts and churches, and that it would be spread to more people. We'll wrap up our passage. Verse 13, Paul continues, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. So he starts out by reminding them that God is the author. God assigned leaders. These specific leaders and this specific real story that happened and in general, God is the author of his church. He is the creator of his body and he chooses to empower and call certain called and qualified people into leadership. And most of you, at least in some area, will lead others. Whether you're leading a community group, a ministry, the whole church, whether you're leading a group of kids as you teach them downstairs or in uh, youth ministry or maybe you lead your family, whatever it might be, we uh, need to remember that God's the one assigning this. He's the one behind this. And he continues by saying, our hope is that your faith will increase. Again, one of the main reasons why God gives power and authority and leadership within the church is so that the church will be 
built up. Another way to say it, so that our faith will increase. Third thing he says, he wants godly influence to grow. So verse 15 said, but our hope is that as your faith increases, church, as you become more gospel-centered, as you trust Jesus more, as you trust your sinful heart and, and Satan's lies less, this, is, this will happen. Our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Kind of sounds strange here, right? Kind of sounds like Paul's kind of jumping back into the super apostle opinion, like, wait, Paul, you want influence now? You're saying that you want more people to listen to you? But listen to what he says. We want your faith, church, to increase so that our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that, verse 16 there, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. The goal for Paul or any other leader who wants more influence is not for their platform to grow, them to get more influence, uh, to make themselves look better or to be more comfortable or to have, you know, just a, a better, more popular life. But the desire should be so that, I want more influence, so that more people will hear and believe and receive the gospel. Unlike the super apostles who want more influence to look better, to be more popular, Paul's arguing true Christian Christ-like leadership wants more influence if God is authoring it, if God's making it happen so that more people can hear the gospel. And in all of this, God will be more glorified. God will more be made famous. Paul in verse 17 ends with saying, let the one who boasts, not boast in being a super apostle, not boast in having a big church or great Twitter following or having lots of money or, or great talents, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul ends up his argument with, Christians believe everything in our life comes from God. Everything good is a gift from God. The family you were born into, the health that you have, the schooling, the opportunities, even your hard work, even your spiritual gifts and your talents, all gifts from God. So when Christians boast, we don't boast, hey, look at me, I'm a great fill in the blank, but we say, look what God has done. Look at the Spirit moving in me despite me. Praise God for what he's doing. I don't boast like the super apostles in my own strength or charisma or popularity, but I boast in the Lord who calls, empowers, and uses whomever he chooses. Leadership and power and authority is not about human power. It's not about intellect or charisma, but about the Spirit empowering people to do what he's calling them to do. Let me give you a secret. Myself, Chris Thompson, Jesse Splann, three elders who are pastors who are here in this room, we're not necessarily the best public speakers, the best leaders, the best fill-in-the-blank of this whole church, right? If we just purely looked at the flesh or at people and their God-given talents or work ethic or knowledge, we might not be at the top of all those lists. Or maybe, maybe you're a husband or a parent and you're called to some type of spiritual leadership within your family maybe you're not the the naturally best of all those things but that's not the point right the world says natural talent charisma popularity power wealth those people rise to the top and we should follow them but god's kingdom's different 
He says, I call weak people. I call broken people. I call inadequate people. I call sinful people. Right? Look at any hero in the Bible. Why are they heroes? Not because they're great, but because God used them. Pick like one character you learned about in, in uh, Sunday school, right? They're great not because they're great. Like they're great because God used them. And the ones who are kind of great because they're great in the flesh, Samson, Saul, like how did things work out for those guys, right? And so we just view leadership differently within the church. We should see Christ in leadership. We should, should see people who uh, are empowered and called by God to do uh, things that he's calling them to do. Things like building up the church, equipping the church for the gifts of the ministry, protecting them, caring for them, speaking the truth in love. Now, as we wrap up here, I know that this might just not be your reality. Probably everyone in this room has had an experience where some type of spiritual authority or, or spiritual leader in your life for sure has let you down, if not even sinned against you, right? So whether it's, you know, a parent not being the greatest spiritual example for you, whether it's someone in leadership, like a youth group leader, or Sunday school teacher, or coach, or pastor, hurting you, maybe even sinning against you in, in great ways, we might be really wrestling with, okay, I see how this plays out. I, I see why Jesus designed this. But it's still really hard for me to understand or to receive or to heal from. And so what I want us to do, I, wanna, I want us to end with not just a, a teaching on what Jesus' leadership looks like, although that is important. What I want us to end with is just looking at Jesus himself. The way that Paul reminds the church that he loves deeply the way he describes his Savior. I, Paul, myself, I plead with you, I implore you, think of our Savior who is meek and gentle, who is humble towards us, who is gentle towards us, who is not weak and powerless, but set aside those for the sake of moving towards us with kindness and gentleness and love. 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon, who you maybe have heard of, he famously uh, has said, if you look at all the chapters in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one spot in all those 90 chapters where we hear about the heart of Jesus, right? The innermost emotional center of, of who Jesus was, his, his posture towards humanity. And that's in that passage we read just a little bit earlier in Matthew 11. Let me expand it just a little bit. Jesus says to you, put your name in here if that would help in your head. He says to us, he says to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and humble and meek in my heart. If you want to know my emotions towards you, that's what it, that's what it is, he says. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. And probably everyone in this room, we fall into one or two, maybe even both of these categories. Maybe you're more like this. Jesus is saying, come to me, all who labor. If your reality, if your personality, if your situation right now is you just are laboring, you're working hard to prove yourself, to get through the pandemic, to be a good spouse, to be a hard worker, to have an identity in making money or, or being a good employee or being a great athlete or student, whatever, whatever it might be. 
This is what Jesus says to you. All who, are la- all who labor and feel burnt out and without hope, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. My heart towards you is open and affectionate and meek and humble and full of love. Or maybe you're this person. You're heavy laden. You're at the brink of hopelessness because life is so hard right now. Whether it's your health, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's relationships, whether it's work. Maybe it's all of that. Jesus says to you too, you who are hopeless or on the brink of hopelessness, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me, look at my heart towards you. It's not embarrassment, it's not anger, it's not disgust. It's meekness and gentleness and humility and love. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, God incarnate, approaches you not as a boss, not as a taskmaster, demanding work hard to those who are laboring really hard. Work hard, step up, grind more, keep on laboring. He doesn't say that. Or if you're the person who's heavy laden, he doesn't come to you as a coach or a parent demanding that you just snap out of it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get over your own darkness. Come on up here. But rather, Jesus Christ comes to you. Comes to you. Comes to us. His heart towards us, open. His natural emotions towards us are gentleness and humility and meekness and love. He offers all of us rest, whether you're laboring hard or whether you're heavy laden. He offers us rest. He gives us rest. It's a gift. He doesn't tell you to buy it or to earn it. He desires to give you himself, the greatest thing that you need, the greatest solution to all your problems, whether you can't stop working to prove yourself or whether you can't stop being hopeless because of your reality and the world around you. He offers himself to you today. Believe that. Let's pray. Oh God, our hearts just so easily forget this or run away from this. Whether it's the sin within us, whether it's the enemy lying to us or or trying to deceive us, we need help in believing this. So thank you God that you are our one good king, our one good leader, our chief shepherd that loves us to hell and back, who who shows us his heart. You're not looking at us with disgust or disdain or embarrassment, but your heart towards us is one of of gentleness, of kindness, of humility and love. Help us to believe that. And then out of that, like our passage ended with today, out of that, share that with others. May the gospel spread throughout our church, throughout our neighborhoods, throughout our city, and beyond. Help us to believe that. Help us to fight spiritually every single day as we take these uh, thoughts captive, as we fight against lies with the truth of the gospel and your word. So, And uh, finally, thank you for our church. Thank you that we're not alone in this, that you give us brothers and sisters to help protect us, to help lead us, to help remind us of these truths, to help point us back to our Savior, whose heart is wide open for us, calling us to himself for, for healing and forgiveness and new life and hope and meaning and belonging. Pray this in Jesus' powerful and saving name.